Um, if you would take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, this morning we'll be in verses 13 through 25. 1 Peter 2 verses 13 through 25. Uh, if you're able, would you stand with me as we read from this part of God's Word? Pay careful attention. This is the Word of God. 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered... He did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. You may be seated. Let us pray. Father, we pray uh, this morning thanking you for your word and ask that you might pour out your Holy Spirit upon us to illumine our hearts and our minds, to understand what has been written, uh, to receive it for our edification, in faith and in love. And we pray that it would be sweet to our hearts as we receive it. So, Father, add your blessing to your word and lead us into all truth, we ask, and help us to see Jesus, for we pray in his name. Amen. In the house where I grew up, uh, for many years, we had a decorative sign in the back hallway that was labeled something like Rules of the House. It's kind of a little wooden sign hanging there. Uh, these are still around today. There's different variations of them. Mostly today, they encourage us to live, laugh, and love to hug, forgive, love our family, eat food, and so forth. Sometimes if you go on vacation, there's a house rules sign that says something like, put your phones up, you know, you all seen these things when you go to the beach. This sign, though, in our house had a series of if-then statements on it, kind of laying out some very fundamental, important principles of life. It said things like, if it's dirty, clean it. If it's full, empty it, presumably referring to the dishwasher or the trash can. It wasn't clear. Uh, if you drop it, pick it up. My favorite one, which always gave me a little bit of pause, if it barks, feed it. Now, this was humorous to me because our dog barked a lot, 
Uh, so, you know, are you supposed to feed it every time it barks? And then for most of our, my growing up years, we actually didn't have a dog, so there was no way to apply the, the principle. Now, the removal of the dog may have had something to do with the copious barking, but I don't, I don't know for sure. Now, the point of the sign was to say something like this. If you live in this house, these rules give structure to the way that you live here. They weren't comprehensive rules. They didn't cover every single situation you might find yourself in. And sometimes the application of the rule might differ depending on the situation, but the rule remained the same, essentially. In this part of Peter's letter, he's, he's doing something similar for these early Christians scattered out from Rome, scattered across the eastern part of the Roman Empire, elect exiles. He's telling them, he's telling us, as we live as elect exiles today, these are the rules that give structure to your life as followers of Jesus in this world. All throughout Peter's instruction, there is uh, a tension. And, and you kind of feel the tension in that title that he gives us as elect exiles, chosen by God and yet living in a place that is not our ultimate home. Our home is yet to come in the resurrection and the new Jerusalem. And yet we're here as God's people. We live in this tension between the first and the second coming of Christ. And so on the one hand, Peter's reminding us uh, as, as he lays out these rules, these principles of living as Christians, on the one hand, he says, you've been called out. You, you've been called out from the world. You belong to God. You are his precious possession. You are his people. You are his holy nation, his beloved prize. You've been born again to a living hope, one that is yet to be fully revealed. You are one of many living stones built upon the living stone into this spiritual house. Your purpose as a spiritual house is to proclaim the greatness of Jesus, the one who's called you out of darkness and into light. You're to be holy, setting aside sinful passions in order to live for God. You've been called out to be different, to be separated in some ways from the world around you. And yet at the same time, you've been called in. Uh, you're, you're, you're in the mix. You are to live in the world within the fabric of the society where God has placed you. Peter talks about the Christians, or talks about the church rather as being a new temple, the colony of heaven on earth. You're to live in this world among your neighbors, among your coworkers, in your community as those who bear witness to the good news of Christ and the blessings of the age to come. Or as we said a couple weeks ago, your life is supposed to be kind of like a window through which people can look to see grace at work, to see the gospel in action and, and to see the truth and the impact of God's grace in you. You're to be a window to the gospel. So Peter says things like, live a good life, a beautiful life in full view of those around you, unbelieving family, family, unbelieving friends, neighbors, and coworkers, so that they might see Christ in you, so that they might, by your beautiful life, be convinced of the truth of the gospel and perhaps on the day when God visits us, uh, the day of his visitation, perhaps many will glorify God in that day as they have come to faith in Christ. You've been called out as God's elect, but you're called in to this world as exiles. And these two things are not at odds. They, they go together and we live with them together. In our passage this morning, Peter's continuing to 
unpack what this means. And he does this by highlighting several different relationships that we live in, uh, in society, in the workplace, and in our family. Uh, and so in this, he's answering these, these questions. Here's what he's after. How do I live as a Christian citizen within a pagan or an unbelieving government? Uh, how do I live as a Christian slave? Uh, he's talking to, to slaves. How do I live as a Christian slave? Or today you might say as an employee, as part of the marketplace, even when my boss is unjust and I suffer for it. And really it's one question. How do I follow Jesus when doing so brings opposition and even hardship on account of my faith in Christ? And his answer to both is this. Submit to those in authority over you because you are a free servant of God and do good while suffering because this is a living parable of the grace of Christ. Submit because you are a free servant to God. Do good while, while suffering because this is a parable of grace. Let's look at those two in order. Submit to those in authority over you because you are a free servant to God. Uh, notice verse 13, and again in verse 18, Peter says twice, be subject, submit. In the first case, be subject to, uh, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution. He's talking about uh, governments, those with authority, and he specifies emperors or governors put in place by emperors to punish evildoers, to praise those who do good. He's talking about our relationship to the powers that be, to the authorities that are in place over us. What's he saying here? Very simply, he's saying that our general posture towards those in authority over us is to be one of submission. Peter's instructions here are essentially the same as what Paul says in Romans 13, that we're to willingly submit ourselves to the governing powers as part of our witness to Christ in this world. And both Peter and Paul are building on the teaching of Jesus, who recognized the God-given authority even of the Roman Caesar. Jesus said, pay your taxes, give unto Caesar what belongs to him, and give unto God what belongs to God. Scripture is uh, explicit that human governments, human authorities are to be obeyed in part because their authority comes from God. It's derived uh, it's not ultimate, but it is derived from God. Kingdoms rise and fall according to God's plan. Those entrusted in the state with the power of justice, the power of the sword, Paul calls it, they're called ministers and servants of God. To resist them is to resist what God has appointed, according to Scripture. Even pagans, even unbelieving, unjust authorities have their authority from God. Swallow hard, this is a hard teaching. <laughs> uh, and I'm tempted, and you, you may be as well, to think we should spend our time answering all of the hard questions about this command. You know, what about civil disobedience? What about when those with authority tell me to go against God's law? They call me to sin and to approve of sin. What do I do then? And we could say a lot about that. Uh, we could benefit from the examples of those Christians uh, throughout history who have resisted tyranny, suffered for the cause of righteousness, sometimes 
uh, at the, the other end of a hungry lion in the Coliseum, sometimes at the other end of a hose in police billy clubs. We have much to learn from Christians who have suffered for the cause of righteousness and who have resisted tyranny. And certainly it's enough to say that if there's a conflict between obeying God and obeying man, we always obey God. Scripture's clear about that. Today, those are other sermons uh, that we're not going to preach today. Just I'm going to, that's a footnote. There's lots of things you could say about submission that we're not going to say today that are worth talking about. What I'd like to do, at least for just a moment, is try to address why it is we ask those questions in our hearts, why it is when somebody says submit to something, to anyone in authority over us, that our first question is, sure, I got it. When are the occasions that I don't have to do that? Give me the exceptions to this rule. Don't you do that? I don't even like saying the word sometimes, to be quite frank. Uh, it's a hard teaching, and our, the posture of our hearts is often, give me the exceptions. When am I off the hook from this command? Why do we do that? Two reasons. The first, I think, is that response of our heart towards any authority, any rightful authority over us, that response of our heart goes all the way back to the root of the very first sin in the garden. So it's not surprising that our hearts still push against any authority over us. God says in the garden, don't eat the fruit. He gives a warning, you'll die. He gives no other reason why they should not eat the fruit. He expects and commands their unquestioning obedience because he is God and they are not. And they say, got it, I'll do what I want. That's the first sin. And we're all plagued by that still in our hearts. Somebody says, do this, and I say, no, thank you. Um, I, I joke often with my, one of my nephews several years ago. We were on a family vacation at the beach, and as a young guy, he was just all over the place, always moving, just all the time, and, and I'm so risk-averse. It always bothered me. You know, he's going to get hurt. He's going to get injured. We were outside around the pool at the beach, and he was you know, just running. And in my mind, slippery concrete, hard head, running. These are, this is not a good combination. And being the only adult outside at the time, I said, hey, buddy, uh, don't run around the pool. And as he ran into the house and slammed the door behind him, he said, you're not the boss of me. <laughs> to which I thought, you're not wrong. Um, and then I also thought, I get it. <laughs> game recognized game. That is my heart as well. You're not the boss of me. That is the root of that first sin. God says, I am your boss. <laughs> I am your creator. I am the ultimate authority over all other authorities. Donate the tree. And they're like, okay, but it looks really good. And so our hearts respond that way. And we need to recognize that that happens in our hearts. And we need to see the rationale, the inner logic of Scripture in why we ought to obey this command. Authority comes from God. That's very clear. But there's a deeper logic that Peter unfolds for us this passage this morning. So it's the heart of the first sin, and it still raises its ugly head in our hearts. But secondly, I think another reason why we have that reaction, which is a result of the first, 
I think we often have a skewed and worldly view of what freedom is and what power is. What, is, what does it mean to be free and what does it mean to have power? We think freedom often means being free to do whatever I want. That's, that's freedom. Scripture says that's bondage. That freedom is actually submitting yourself to God. That that's where you find true freedom. You know, freedom is not walking, riding on the railroad tracks and saying, well, I'm just going to go off the tracks. That's freedom. Then I can do what I want. That's disaster, right? Freedom is submitting to God's authority and God's rule. That's where we find true freedom is in service to him. It seems like a paradox to us, but that's what scripture teaches us about freedom. And oftentimes we think that power is the assertion of our rights, that that's where power really lies. I would say, you know, and this is maybe a little bit challenging for us in our, our context in our nation where we, we love freedom and, and we, we exalt power. We probably shouldn't, but we do. We exalt power on an earthly scale. We think power is good. We exalt it. We value it. We honor it. And so sometimes we, we kind of get the way that we think about power gets skewed uh, and distorted on account of that. We think power has to do with an assertion of my rights. And if you cross my rights, what do I do? I keep asserting them against you and I assert my power uh, in opposition to you. You will be hard pressed. Now you can prove me wrong, uh, maybe. I think you will be hard pressed to find that kind of attitude in Christians that power has to do with the assertion of your rights. Power has to do with love. Power has to do with self-sacrifice. Power has to do with serving others. Uh, and we see that in what Peter says here in this passage. Power comes through laying down our lives to do good to others. Here, Peter calls us in this passage to follow the way of the cross, to find freedom, in service to God, in power, in laying down our lives to do good to those around us, even in submission to what may be unjust, unbelieving authority. Why does Peter say this to these early Christians? Consider the situation they're in in the first century. Those in authority were often hostile toward them. Christianity is kind of new on the scene, even though it's connected to Judaism and the fulfillment of uh, the, the Old Testament scriptures, it's new on the scene in terms of the social uh, situation and religions that were prominent in the day. And oftentimes Christians stood out in pagan society by their commitment to live for Jesus, to bring the emperor down a notch, that his authority was not ultimate, God's was, that they served Jesus as Lord, not Caesar as Lord. And though Christians were present in every level of society, their lives were different enough that they often attracted attention. And sometimes that attention was not good attention. It was maybe not attention that they wanted because they suffered for it, especially when Christians were seen as a threat to society. In the Roman Empire, the state and religion were one. There's no division of church and state. That just made no sense in that day. Uh, and so the, the social fabric of the empire revolved around the worship, the cult, the religion of worshiping the emperor. And so to be a good citizen in the Roman Empire meant 
you worshiped the emperor. You paid homage to him. You participated in the social, political, religious feast that exalted the emperor as a god. And of course, Christians would not participate in this. They knew this was idolatry. And so they stood out, they faced opposition and hostility from local governors and authorities simply for being Christian. In fact, in one letter from the second century, uh, a local governor writes to the emperor and he asks him, how do I handle Christians when they're brought to trial? And what he meant was this, do I have to find an actual crime to bring against them or can I just punish them for being Christians? Is that enough? that they're Christians and not worshiping the emperor. And the emperor said, yeah, you can just punish them for being Christians. That's, that's fine. Uh, and that's often what happened. Any group that didn't participate in the worship of the emperor, this civic religion, was viewed as subversive, a threat. Let's be clear, to a certain extent, they were right to be concerned, just not for the right obvious, or not for the obvious reasons, or the reasons that seemed obvious. To a certain extent, Christians are always subversive in any secular society, but not in the ways that we typically expect. Peter's instructions highlight that in the way that he calls them to live under governments, to submit for the Lord's sake as servants of God and to do good. Think about it this way. Uh, what would you be tempted to do in response to official government hostility toward you for your faith. You know, say you experience that in some way uh, where you get thrown in jail or lose your job, uh, you're ostracized socially and politically and so forth because you're a Christian. What, and it's unfair, it's unjust, uh, it's not right. What, what's your response to that? What's a tempting response? One temptation would be to respond in kind, to simply match power with power, and to misunderstand the nature of real power. You see, oftentimes we simply adopt the way the world operates, and we forget to follow the way of the cross, which is true power. Peter is reminding us here that Jesus has called us to a different kind of kingdom, than the kingdoms of this world. His is a kingdom that is more powerful than all other kingdoms, not by garnering more political strength than its opponents, not by maneuvering to put down opposition through threat, but by laying down our lives in service to God and to others. The way of the cross overcomes the world, not the way of the sword. Peter says, this is the will of God. Submit to those in authority and by doing good, you will silence slander and opposition. We have some examples from early Christianity of what this looked like. Uh, one early Christian seeking to defend and persuade others of the gospel urged pagans to carefully examine the lives of Christians before they responded in ignorance. said, you don't even know what Christians believe. You don't even know what they're like. There are all these uh, kind of rumors running about in first century uh, Roman Empire, that Christians were superstitious, that they committed incest, that they ate babies, all kinds of weird things, and people acted in foolishness and in ignorance and slandered Christians. And this one writer says, go look at their lives. Go see how they live, and you'll see through their lives the truth of what they believe. Go examine their lives. This was especially evident in the way that Christians cared for the poor and the vulnerable. 
I don't think I can stress this enough because it's so different than today. But in the first century, the, the empire, the state, did not care for the poor and the vulnerable. Now, in our heads, we think, well, that, that's normal to care for the poor and the vulnerable and that the, the state has some role in that. You know why we think that's normal? Because Christian faith has influenced the entire world. But before that, it was not normal. And so pagans in the first century, when Peter's writing this, they didn't take care of the poor. They didn't take care of their own poor. They didn't take care of their own sick, their own vulnerable. They, they cast them out. But Christians cared for the poor and the vulnerable. There's no social services, no safety net for the poor, the orphan, and the widow. Pagan temples would gather donations, money from all you know, the high strata of society, and they would use that money to throw banquets and to have drinking feasts, just debauchery. Christians gathered, and they pulled their resources together. They took in donations, and do you know what they did with that money? They supported and served the poor, the orphans and the widows, even those who didn't belong to the church. They cared for the poor and the vulnerable. During plagues in the second and third century, it was Christians who gave their lives to care for the sick and the dying. Pagans would leave those who were still living, but they thought were dying, leave them on the road to die. But Christians did simple, loving acts of mercy for the sick, giving them water to drink and food to eat, reducing mortality rates, often at the expense of their own lives, dying for the sake of others. This witness was so powerful that the Emperor Julian, by no stretch a Christian, said those, he called Christians impious Galileans, he says, those impious Galileans not only support their poor, but ours as well. What were they doing? They were following the way of the cross. They were submitting even to unjust authority, and they were doing good to those around them. Not just like baseline good, but above and beyond good. Loving their enemies, forgiving those who injured them and slandered them, doing good to them by way of as a way of showing the love and the mercy of Christ to them. And they silenced the ignorant slander of foolish people, not by asserting their rights, certainly not by doing what they pleased in that sense, but by laying down their lives in service to God and others. I'd like to spend a little bit more time on the slaves and masters part, but let me just say a few things about this. Peter calls us to submit to authority while doing good, and he calls us also to do good while suffering unjustly as a living parable of grace. Notice what he says to uh, servants. So these are slaves in the first century uh, living under kind of the authority of their masters, and they had to do what was told them to do. And notice the instructions that Peter gives them. Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. And here's what I want you to notice. The beginning of verse 19 and the end of verse 20, Peter literally says, this is grace. What, what does he mean by that? He says, this is grace. When you do good, you suffer unjustly for it, and you endure while trusting God. Now, what does he mean when he says, this is grace? I think he means a couple of things. In, in, in one case, the translation catches it. He says, this is a gracious thing, or at the end of verse 20, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Part of what he's saying is, God will care for you if you suffer unjustly. 
and yet continue to do good and trust God. God will be gracious to you. He will show favor to you. But I think he's also saying something else. I think he's also saying when you do that, think about what he's saying. When you do good to those who are doing ill towards you and those who are, are treating you unjustly, when you do good to them and you endure that suffering, this is grace. He's saying you're showing them what grace looks like because this is what Jesus did. I mean, you hear how intimately Peter connects the cross with the way that we live. You, you want to know how to live under authority? You want to know how to live under a boss who treats you poorly or, uh, you know, friends who treat you unjustly, uh, siblings who argue and put you down, uh, spouses who do that. You want to know how to live in that situation when you're suffering unjustly, not because of some sin that you've committed, but you're doing good. You want to know how to live in that way? Look at the cross. And we know that that's what Peter's talking about because of the way he ends the passage. Uh, verse 22, or 21 rather. To this you've been called. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And then he walks through Isaiah 53, but applying it to the death of Jesus. He, he had no sin in his mouth. Can you imagine the things that they did to Jesus leading up to the cross? Not a word against them from Jesus. He, he endured it like a lamb that is led silently to the slaughter. He kept his mouth shut. Why? For you. He was reviled. He did not revile in return. He was threatened. He did not return the threat. What was he doing? He was submitting. But not just to Pontius Pilate, not just to the religious authorities. He was submitting to the Father, giving his life for us to redeem us from sin, that we might live for righteousness and trust him when he says, submit to those in authority over you. Do good to them. Entrust yourself to me. This is grace. I will care for you. You don't have to take it into your own hands. I will care for you. Trust me and walk in obedience. Look at Jesus. Look at the way of the cross. When Peter says this is an example, uh, that word doesn't quite capture how closely he wants us to follow Jesus. The word literally means it was the word used to describe if you were learning how to write letters and you would have somebody write out the letter and then you'd put a piece of paper over it and just trace it, that closely, follow his example. What does he do? He, he's, he's innocent. He does not revile. He does not return evil for evil. He lovingly lays down his life for the sake of others and he trusts God in the midst of all of that. And he does it to bring us back, to heal our wounds, to bear our sins in his body on the tree to bring us back to our shepherd. This is a parable of grace. When you live in a way uh, that where you can continue to do good even to those who are treating you unjustly and entrust yourself to your father who is in heaven. Our lives have been redeemed by Christ in his self-sacrifice, giving himself for us. He is our example, but he is also our enabler. How, how can you possibly do this? How can you possibly submit to governing authorities 
who may do you harm? How can you possibly do good to those who treat you poorly, whether it's your boss or whatever, whatever the case may be, it applies across the board. How can you possibly do that? The only way is if you see that Jesus has first done this for you. When you have embraced for yourself the good news that Christ submitted, that Christ suffered for you, that he laid down his life in love and sacrifice for you, and that this is the most powerful thing in the world, the sacrifice of love that Christ has made for us at his cross and in his resurrection. And so there's application across the board. If you're uh, a worker, you've got a boss, and you don't like them, and you don't like what they say, guess what? Jesus calls you to bear witness to him by doing good and working hard. It's just a fact that Christ calls us and enables us to do that. You're a person who's in a relationship, and there's suffering unjustly underneath that. Christ calls you to love, uh, to give, to, to do good to that person uh, as a witness to Christ and how he did good to you as your redeemer, to follow in his example. Christ calls us to lay down our lives uh, as we follow in his example because he laid down his life for us. And as we come to the table uh, this morning, we're reminded of all the many ways that Jesus did this, from the cross saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, to the work of Jesus in your life, that he did this for you gave his, his body to be crucified, shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And he calls us again and again to remember what he has done for us, to receive it in faith, to let it permeate our lives so that our lives are shaped by his cross, his sacrifice, and his love, and to go and live in a way that imitates him and displays his grace. This is grace when we walk after Jesus in this way. May he give us grace and strength to do that as we embrace him in faith. Would you pray with